Well, welcome back to the Bible Reading Challenge podcast. My name is Aaron Ventura, and today we begin our new series through the book of Revelation. And the goal of these episodes is to provide you with a chapter-by-chapter companion as you read through this book. So there are 22 chapters in Revelation, so I'm going to limit myself to 22 episodes, which means I have to be very selective about what goes into each episode. So uh, let me explain up front how I'm going to uh, determine what goes into uh, each episode and what I leave out, because I certainly cannot cover uh, everything, and there are many commentaries that uh, cover every detail. So my hope is that you will be able to just uh, read the book of Revelation as you're going through your uh, Bible reading, and then you can either listen to this episode before or after, and hopefully this will just help make some of the things that are obscure a little more clear, because this book is a revelation. It is not a a concealing of what uh, God is trying to reveal. So uh, what I have done is I've gone through the entire book of Revelation and I wrote down all the questions that I have or think other people will have as they read. Now, granted, I'm going to have probably different questions than you. And then what I did was I put all of those questions that I had into a enormous spreadsheet. And I forget how many are on it. Uh, There's a hundred plus questions on there. So on the left, I have a column of questions. And then to the right of each question is a row of answers or interpretations from some of the people that I consider to be uh, the best interpreters of Revelation or just some representative interpretations for different schools of thought. So after seeing what these commentators have to say, and of course, looking at the text myself, I then kind of formulate, piece together what my own thoughts are my own position and response to the question that I asked is. And then for each episode covering each chapter of the book, I'm going to walk through as much of the material as I think can be covered in, I don't know, probably around 30 minutes. Uh, So that is the kind of method to my madness. Now, who are my go-to guys when it comes to interpreting Revelation? Who are the people on my spreadsheet? Well, there are basically two men that I believe have done uh, the best and most extensive work on the book of Revelation, and they are James Jordan and Philip Kaiser. And unfortunately, neither of these men have published yet full uh, detailed commentaries. James Jordan wrote a uh, shorter book, and I also have an unpublished uh, work of his. And then Philip Kaiser, I believe, is in the process of putting together a uh, written commentary. But what I have done is uh, James Jordan has 204 lectures, I believe 143 hours of material that I have actually listened to uh, going through Revelation in detail. And then Philip Kaiser has 118 sermons on Revelation, along with a very excellent website that has additional resources, some really good graphics on it. And so I would encourage you all to check uh, those out. Uh, You can find Philip Kaiser's stuff at Revelation biblicalblueprints.org. I highly recommend uh, going to that. And he, he also has a podcast series. Uh, I forget what exactly it's called, but uh, if you go online, you can find what it is. And he has, you can listen to all of his sermons on the book of Revelation, which uh, I am leaning on. And then he has his manuscripts published on the website as well. And then if you want to uh, listen to James Jordan's lectures, uh, those, uh, you have to buy those, uh, and those can be purchased at wordmp3.com. And uh, James Jordan is one of those people who uh, I often disagree with, but he's always insightful even if I do disagree with him. And so um, I like to see what he has to say. And so uh, Kaiser and Jordan are uh, really some of the first two guys I'm going to check with because they've done a lot of the work for me already of sorting through the hundreds of commentaries that are out there that 
exist on Revelation. I believe Kaiser has like every single re uh, commentary on Revelation in his library. So uh, I certainly don't want to spend the money to buy all those, nor do I want to read a lot of those because some of them are trash. <laughs> okay, let's just be honest about it. Uh, so uh, they have done the work of separating the gold from the dross, and that helps streamline my research because I certainly don't want a spreadsheet with a hundred different views on it. I kind of want to uh, break it down to what I think are uh, the best representatives of uh, interpretation on the book. And then once I see what they have to say, I then cross check with some of my other written commentaries on Revelation. So I'm not just consulting Jordan and Kaiser. There's a bunch of other guys I'm going to uh, look into, possibly cite along the way as well. And so I'm going to give you the bibliography, kind of who, who are the other people I am going to be consulting and possibly mentioning in this uh, running commentary on Revelation. So let me start, and I'm going to go through from the earliest commentaries up into the most uh, recent. So beginning with the ancient Christian commentary series on Revelation, uh, this includes some of the earliest commentaries extant, uh, covering roughly the first, I don't know, 500 to 700 years of church history. So this gives you a representative interpretation of what the early church uh, thought about the book. And then on into the medieval period, Nicholas of Lyra's Apocalypse commentary. He was a medieval theologian, Franciscan teacher, and he interpreted the book of Revelation from a more historicist framework. So he's going to find like the rise of Islam. He's going to find Muslims. He's going to find the Pope in the book of Revelation. And though I do not take that position or interpretation of the book, he does have some uh, interesting, insightful things to say at times. So I like to just see what he has to say. Uh, Austin Ferrer, he was a Anglican who died in 1968. He wrote a book called A Rebirth of Images, The Making of St. John's Apocalypse. So I will consult that from time to time. David Chilton, he was a reconstructionist who died in 1997, and he wrote a very excellent commentary called The Days of Vengeance. And if there is maybe one commentary that you should buy on the book of Revelation, I'd probably say this is the one to get. It is uh, pretty detailed, pretty extensive, and I think he does a very good job of both treating the Old Testament symbolism and making good uh, applications of it. So David Chilton, Days of Vengeance, I will be relying on him quite a bit. Uh, next up, R.J. Rushduni, also a Reconstructionist guy, died in 2001, and he wrote a commentary called Thy Kingdom Come. This is a very short commentary that also includes a commentary on the book of Daniel as well, so it may just be a few pages each that he uh, discusses discusses each chapter, and Rashiduni is always a very interesting uh, person to read. Up next, G.K. Beale. He is a professor at Reform Theological Seminary in Dallas and ordained in the OPC. He is alive, about 72 years old, and he wrote a very scholarly commentary on the book of Revelation in the New International Greek Testament Commentary Series, the NIGTC. And so if you want something more scholarly that is going to deal with actual Greek text, uh, G.K. Beale is your go-to guy there. Up next, Douglas Wilson, my pastor. He's alive. He is about 68 years old, and he wrote a commentary called When the Man Comes Around that was published by Canon Press just within the last couple years or so. Very easy to read, very uh, short, readable commentary. I uh, highly recommend that. 
Uh, and then Peter Lightheart. He was also a pastor out here in Moscow for a time, started Trinity Reform Church, taught at New St. Andrews College. He's alive still, 62 years old, and now working on the Theopolis Institute, getting that uh, going. And they, that's also, they have a very excellent podcast as well, which I, I highly recommend. And they're still going through a series on Daniel, which if you want to understand Revelation, you definitely need to understand Daniel first. And so I highly recommend listening to uh, that series there doing over on the Theopolis uh, podcast. Now, he wrote a commentary. It's a two-volume commentary on Revelation in the TNT Clark International Commentary Series. And this is uh, one of those series that is ridiculously expensive and hard to get. So uh, I have the actual Logos Bible software version, which was a little bit cheaper. But if you have a, a library or a theological library nearby, uh, that has this, I uh, would recommend going there and checking it out. Uh, Peter Lightheart worked with James Jordan, and so his commentary is going to reflect a lot of Jordan's views. I'm sure he has his own original ideas as well, and so I'm going to consult him uh, as well from time to time. And then lastly, if it comes out soon, Kenneth Gentry is supposed to have a commentary on Revelation. He's one of uh, the people who actually helped me understand post-millennialism. He has a, ve a very good book called He Shall Have Dominion and other works on uh, eschatology in general. And I would be interested to read his commentary when it comes out. And if it does come out in time, I will consult him as well. Okay, so that's that was maybe boring to some of you, maybe interesting and illuminating to others, but those are the written commentaries that I'm going to consult, and there's probably other ones that I have uh, that might not get a mention in that bibliography. Okay, with that out of the way, let us actually dive into chapter 1. Uh, Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, make up what we might call the prologue of the book. So this is basically God's divinely inspired introduction. And in these 11 verses, there are all kinds of clues and instructions as to how we should interpret the book. And if you understand these 11 verses, I think it rules out a lot of the other commonly held but incorrect views that you will find on the book of Revelation. Uh, Philip Kaiser actually has 14 sermons on just these 11 verses where he lays out 33 interpretive principles for how to approach this book. And those are in my spreadsheet. And I'll probably try to share that spreadsheet when I uh, finish it in the future. Uh, James Jordan also has 10 lectures introducing the book on and these first 11 verses. So there's a lot packed in here. And so it's important to go somewhat slowly through these first uh, verses so that you don't get off on the wrong foot. And then you're making uh, stupid interpretive mistakes later on. So I want to read a quote from James Jordan that I think summarizes the kind of work that we need to do in order to interpret Revelation correctly. And this is from, I believe it's an unpublished work. I had to uh, special request it. This is Orientation in the Book of Revelation. Uh, and he says this, The book of Revelation assumes that we are thoroughly familiar with the tabernacle of Exodus 25 to 40. It assumes we are thoroughly familiar with all the sacrifices of Leviticus, and especially the calendar of sacrifices and the order of sacrifices. It assumes we are thoroughly at home in the design of the Israelite encampment in Numbers. It assumes we are thoroughly familiar with how the temple transformed the tabernacle and how David transformed the Levites and priests in 1 Chronicles. It assumes we are radically at home in the restoration temple described by Ezekiel in the last nine chapters of his book and that we know the symbolism of Daniel and Zechariah by heart. And all that is just for starters. The vast amount of information just described is concerned with two things orientation in space and time. 
the ritual order of sacrifice, the sequence of sacrifices in more elaborate offerings, and the calendar of sacrifices through the year all orient the old creation participant in time. The tabernacle, temple, and restoration temple, together with the camp of Israel around the first of these, all orient the participant in space. These orientations are consistent, congruent, overlapping, analogous to one another, both spatially and temporally. The movement of the sacrifice from altar to ark throne is also the movement from priesthood to kingship, from Moses and Aaron to David. It is a movement from east to west. The book of Revelation also assumes we are thoroughly familiar with the heptamerous, that just means seven, pattern of God's activity revealed in Genesis 1, and applied repeatedly throughout old creation history. It assumes we have a good idea of what range of concepts fits with each slot in this pattern. It assumes we know that 7 is 4 plus 3, and that 12 is 4 times 3. It assumes that we shall bring this understanding with us when we read that the fourth trumpet and the fourth bowl brings judgments against the sun, which was made on the fourth day, and that the seals are arranged as four horses plus three, and that the trumpets are arranged as four trumpets plus three woes, opposite of the blessings on the last three days of Genesis 1. The book of Revelation assumes all of this and much, much more. Wow. Okay, so uh, if that's what Revelation assumes, uh, that means most of us are not qualified to actually interpret this book rightly, which is why we need to go uh, read the Old Testament, we need to read all of the Bible, and we need to see how these uh, symbols develop and morph through the canon. So that's a lot of information that most people are totally unfamiliar with, uh, which is why we actually have been doing this Bible Reading Challenge podcast, because Revelation is the culmination of the entire Bible, and especially the symbolism that began in Genesis. It gets transformed and built in the Exodus. It develops further under the monarchy period. It develops again in the prophets, and then it comes to fruition and fulfillment in the New Testament. So Revelation is like the capstone course of biblical studies, because just about every single word, every single thing in this book is a callback to something earlier in the Bible. And if you misinterpreted that thing back in Daniel, you're probably going to misinterpret it when you read it in Revelation. Even the literary structure of the book has significance and has various sevenfold and chiastic patterns. There are a bunch of different sevens in this book. I mean, there's a bunch of different sevens just in this first chapter of the book. But the cool thing is that if you take the time to work through Revelation, it's going to actually make the Old Testament click into place and make a lot more sense to you. So, let me read the first four verses of Revelation and then pull out a few of the principles for interpretation that come from it. So, I'm not going to go through Kaiser's however many 30 principles. I'm going to just give you uh, a few of mine that are going to guide us through this series. All right, Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Okay, principle number one. This book is a revelation, not a concealment. It is a unveiling, not a veiling. And what it unveils is Jesus Christ and his work in history. So we should expect to see a lot of Jesus in this book. Principle number two, 
This revelation was given by God to show his servants things that must take place shortly, quickly, swiftly. How shortly or how soon? Very soon. There is simply no way to take these words very soon to mean thousands of years off in the future without violating all the other rules of grammar and logic and word usage. So everything in this book is going to be fulfilled or begin to take place in the first century. And this gets explained more in verse 19 when Jesus says to John, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. So revelation is about events soon to take place, but some things have already happened. Some are currently in progress, and some are still to come after those things in progress. As we will see in future episodes, some of the things which John sees are the birth of Christ, his ascension to heaven, the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost, and the persecution of the church in the book of Acts. So what John is going to be shown in heaven, some of it we've already seen the earthly manifestation of in Acts and the epistles. Not everything, but some of it. Third principle. This book is written in another language, and I don't just mean Greek. I mean the language of biblical symbolism. It says at the end of Revelation 1.1, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. And that word signified tells us that this book is not written like Romans or Luke. It's a book that has been signed or symbolized to us, and the language is biblical symbolism. Now, this is where a lot of people get mixed up because they don't understand how biblical symbolism works. Biblical symbols are living images that grow and develop through the biblical timeline. And to cite James Jordan again, the reason the language symbol exists is to say things that cannot readily be said in discourse languages. A symbol can indicate several things at once if it exists in several symbolic packages. For instance, the tabernacle and temple simultaneously symbolize the cosmos, the house of God, the social community, the individual human being, and the Messiah as perfect man. Similarly, the altar is simultaneously a miniature holy mountain, God's people as a whole, the human person, and Jesus. In the same way, symbolic narratives exist at more than one level. Think of Revelation as a polyphonic musical composition in which several melodies are moving simultaneously but with perfect harmony and interaction. So reading scripture, and Revelation especially, is less like trying to decipher a code or solving a mathematical equation, and it's more like listening to a piece of music and identifying the various harmonies and melodies of the piece. And where interpreters tend to go wrong is when they make a single harmony that's really there, and they turn that into the dominant melody of the song. This means we have to retrain our ears and eyes to the symbolic patterns of scripture and how they develop. One place to start would be with the seven days of creation. And if you read Revelation, listening for the seven days of creation and how that is expanded in the Hebrew festival calendar, you'll notice it actually follows that sevenfold structure. Another would be the architecture of the temple. Hebrew says the earthly temple is a copy of the heavenly reality. Well, Revelation gives us the heavenly reality. That's what we're actually seeing. 
So uh, I highly recommend going online to Google or YouTube or somewhere and looking uh, at a few different examples of the tabernacle. Look at the images of the tabernacle, then look up images of Solomon's temple and Ezekiel's temple and Herod's temple when it gets completed. And then see if you can close your eyes and walk through each of them in your mind. There's an outer courtyard where the Gentiles can come, then an inner courtyard where the animals are sacrificed on the altar, and there is a laver of cleansing. Then if you were a priest, you could pass through the twin pillars of Yaakin and Boaz into the holy place. And within that holy place, you would find the golden lampstand, like stars for light and the table of showbread. And you would know how many lampstands there are in the tabernacle and how many lampstands there are in the temple. Hint, there's 10 in Solomon's temple. And then just in front of the veil that separated you from the most holy place was this altar of incense. What was that made out of? Well, in Solomon's temple, it was made out of gold. And then if you were the high priest who was allowed to go into the most holy place on the day of atonement, what would you see? Well, you would see the Ark of the Covenant with the Book of the Covenant inside and two cherubim sitting above it. And that was God's chariot throne. Now, if you have this temple in your mind as you read Revelation, suddenly you're going to notice that almost every single chapter has some reference point to what happens in the temple. We're going to see altars and angels, lampstands, bowls, trumpets, the scroll of the covenant, a little book, etc. So those are just a couple examples of the symbolic patterns and images that you want to become familiar with for Revelation to make sense. And it really is like learning another language. But the cool thing is, is that this is the language of reality. God wants to train us to read narrative, to read symbols, so that we can read reality and history. And this is where it becomes super relevant. The book of Revelation is this manual for spiritual warfare. It's a manual for reformation of worship. And this is part of our maturation as images of God. We ourselves are images, symbols that signify what God is like. So we must commit ourselves to this lifelong journey of becoming a better reader of this language that is symbol. The fourth interpretive principle for this book is something that applies to reading scripture in general, and that is that scripture interprets scripture. And therefore, all extra-biblical sources like the Apocrypha, Pseudepigrapha, Josephus, Tacitus, etc. must be subservient to Scripture. So, Josephus has very helpful details about this time period that can confirm and give extra information about what is happening in the book of Revelation. But we must not turn these fallible, uninspired men into our infallible guides for finding a first-century fulfillment. So, I will probably in the future quote Josephus. I'll quote Tacitus, a Roman historian, and some of the other historians in future episodes to support my interpretation. But we have to be careful not to become over-dependent on them so that they are the ones determining our exegesis, because they're not scripture. They're not inspired. They can only provide helpful evidence to confirm what Revelation says. And if there is a disagreement between when or what Revelation says and what all the historians say, we should check our work to make sure we read it correctly, but we always must go with what the Bible says above what fallible men say, including historians. And if you want my proof texts for this principle, I would point you to the very first episode we did of our summer season, How to Read Scripture According to Scripture. 
So those are four principles for reading that I'm going to try to follow and that I believe the scripture itself gives us. Now let's get into some of the questions you might have about chapter one. And in future episodes, there will be more content just answering these questions. But since this this is the first episode, we needed to do some of this introductory work. Okay, first question. Who are these seven churches in Asia and what do they signify? Well, I believe that these are seven literal historical churches in real geographic locations that John is going to send letters to, as we will see in chapters two and three. But there are seven of them in order to signify the fullness or totality of the church. So they are both literal in the first century and symbolic of the church as a whole. James Jordan also points out that what is said about each church in chapters two to three connects with seven periods of old creation history. So in uh, chapter two, verse seven, you see the tree of life. This connects, of course, to Eden. In chapter two, verse 10, being thrown into prison connects with Joseph. Chapter 2, verse 14, mentions Balaam, which connects us to the wilderness period. Chapter 2, verse 20, the threat of Jezebel, connects us to the kingdom period. Chapter 3, verse 2, the things that are ready to die, connects with the judgment and exile. Chapter 3, verse 7, the quote about the key of David comes from Isaiah 22, and it connects us to the restoration period. And then chapter 3, verse 16, the lukewarmness relates to the apostasy in Jesus' own day. The next seven we encounter is in verse five, where grace and peace come from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So what are these seven spirits? Well, this is symbolic of the Holy Spirit and harkens back to Isaiah 11, one to two and Zechariah chapter four. And I would especially suggest reading Zechariah four because you have these same images of lampstands, bowls, olive trees, etc. And Revelation is picking up on this symbolism. So I take the seven spirits to signify the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Then in verse 7 it says, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Well, what is this coming with the clouds that is mentioned here? I take this as referring to Christ's ascension to heaven and the judgment that comes after it. The language here comes straight out of Daniel chapter 7 and Nahum 1 and many other places where God comes in the clouds to execute judgment. So this is not talking about what we might think of as the second coming to earth at the end of history, but his coming up to heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father. And then from there, his judgments take place in the time leading up to AD 70. This is the fulfillment of what Jesus says to the high priest in Matthew 26, 64, right before he is crucified. You shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The ascension to heaven in AD 30 inaugurates this heavenly reign of this son of man, and it's revealed in the judgments that take place and by the visible signs in heaven that took place in the wars leading up to AD 70. And when we get to future chapters, I'll read you some of the quotes from external sources that actually describe these signs in the sky of a man's face, of fiery chariots, and so forth. The last question we'll answer from Revelation 1 is, who are these seven stars in the right hand of this one like the Son of Man? Who are the seven stars? What do they signify? Well, the image here is this Son of Man figure who most commentators take to be Jesus standing in the midst of the seven lampstands. And we are told in verse 20, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands, which you saw are the seven churches. So get this in your head. Stars equals angels, lampstands equals churches. Now the Greek word for angel is angelos and it simply means messenger. And it's used to refer to both human messengers 
and heavenly messengers, what we typically think of as angels. Now, when we hear the word angel, we're typically thinking spiritual being with wings. But let me read to you an example where angels, angelos, are clearly humans. This is Luke 9, 51 to 52. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent messengers, angelus, before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. All right, so here in Luke, these are clearly human beings who are sent on ahead, possibly his disciples, and they are called angels. And this is true in the Old Testament as well. The Hebrew word malach refers to both heavenly messengers, what we think of as angels, and human messengers. And most Bible translations simply do this interpretive work for you. They look at the context, and if it's a heavenly spiritual being, they're going to typically translate it as angel. And if it's a earthly human being, they typically translate it as messenger. But it's the same Greek, same Hebrew word that is beneath it. And this is kind of like our interpretive decision that we had to make in an earlier episode on Psalm 82 and John 10 on the Elohim. Are they angels? Are they humans? Is this God? So there's different ways that the same word can be used. So the question is, well, which is it here? Are these seven stars in Jesus' right hand heavenly angels or human beings? Well, I agree with the majority of commentators that I consulted, Jordan, Lightheart, Chilton, my own pastor, Doug Wilson, that these are human beings, and they are specifically pastors or bishops over the churches in these seven regions. And I think the best argument for these seven stars being pastors is that John is told to write a letter to each of them. Revelation 2.1 begins with, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. And you think, wouldn't it be weird for God to tell John to write a letter that is then supposed to somehow go back to some heavenly angel in heaven? Moreover, the content of each letter has sections that are directly specific to this angel. And the things that are described are things that pastors are responsible for doing, not heavenly angelic beings. For example, Revelation 2.2 says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And actually, Revelation 1 to 3 are chapters where reading it in an old version like the King James is actually really helpful. And that is because in all modern translations, the second person personal pronoun, you, can refer to a single person or a group of people. In the South, we use y'all, but in modern translation, the word you doesn't tell you if the Greek word beneath it is singular or plural. So in the King James, if it says thy or thou, it's singular. It's directed at one person, namely the angel or pastor of the church. And then when it shifts to ye, it is now talking to a group of people. The Greek pronoun beneath it is plural. So for example, when John writes to the angel pastor of the church in Smyrna, he begins by saying, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty. That's singular. He's directing it to the pastor. And then he shifts to the plural later on saying, behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried and ye shall have tribulation 10 days, moving into the plural. So I take these seven stars, these seven angels, to refer to the pastor or bishop of each church. 
But just as the seven churches are both literal and symbolic, so also are these seven stars. So in Genesis 1, stars are given as lights in the firmament for signs and for seasons, for days and for years, and to give light to the earth. The lights in heaven literally rule the day or rule the night. So stars are associated with authority and government and rule. And that's just from Genesis 1. And we could keep tracing this throughout scripture. In Jude, you actually see false teachers are called wandering stars. They're wandering messengers. So not only are these seven stars, seven pastors who will receive this letter from John, they are also symbolic of the church's government. They are stars in the sky. Together, we might call these seven stars the presbytery of the universal church. Some would even connect this with heavenly constellations like the Pleiades, which as we will see in the next two chapters, Jesus is going to tell these stars that they need to exercise rule in accord with his law. They need to exercise church discipline and care. Kick some people out. Well, that's chapter one of Revelation. If you have any other questions, please do email me at aventura at Christkirk.com. And until next time, keep on reading.